I'm standing at 110 3rd Avenue in Manhattan, halfway between 13th and 14th Street, right on the edge of the Lower East Side. And this is currently the location of a luxury apartment building, 21 floors of condos, 76 total residences, the most recent sold for $2.3 million. But as with most luxury apartment buildings on the Lower East Side, this is a relatively new structure. Construction on it began in 2005 and the first apartments were sold in 2006. Before that, there was a movie theater here. I had already lived in New York now for a year. This is filmmaker, director, and Columbia University professor, Betty Gordon. And I had walked by the cinema one day on 3rd Avenue called Variety Cinema. And it caught me, it caught my eye. It had the old fashioned marquee, brightly lit. It was beautiful. It was pink and red and green and it was a booth in front, and I didn't even think one day. I just walked up, and I thought, wow, you, know, you don't see many of these theaters. They were up in Times Square, too, of course, at the time. And I didn't realize that on 13th Street, it was a porn cinema, but I didn't know. How you doing, buddy? Good, all right. All right, man. Have a good time, man. Keep on the screen, all right? When I realized that, because you could see the posters outside, I just happened to think, wow, maybe I could shoot something on the outside of the cinema. Show started yet? Which one do you want to see? Sex Roulette or The Devil Insider? Sex Roulette? And I met the projectionist one day when I was kind of hanging out there with my camera, and he said, well, do you want to come into the booth with me? So I said, wow, could I? He goes, yeah, come on, I'll take you up. So I go into the booth and I see the movie, the porn movie from the booth, and I have my Super 8 camera. So I said, wow, maybe I could really do something here. The result was the feature film Variety, which went on to play at a very different venue than Variety Photo Plays, the 1984 Cannes Film Festival. It was one of the best films to emerge from a vibrant downtown New York film scene in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And as illustrated by that little origin story, what these downtown filmmakers lacked in budgets and resources, they made up for in ingenuity, using the city around them and the talents of their peers to craft a new, distinctive, and influential cinematic style. This is, of course, also true of other cinematic movements, the French and Czech New Waves of the 1960s, the New Hollywood of the 1970s, and the American Indie Explosion of the 1990s. But the New York downtown scene, or no-wave cinema, as it was sometimes called, was set apart by one key difference, the prominence, and in many ways, domination, of women filmmakers. So why did this scene achieve a gender parity rare in even independent cinema? to say nothing of its mainstream Hollywood counterpart. To find out, we talked to three of those filmmakers. Betty Gordon. Do I call myself a filmmaker or a director? Susan Seidelman. I never heard the word yuppie. And Lizzie Borden. Like the ass murderer. As well as contemporary film writer, Abby Bender. Yeah, I moved to New York like the same year as Madonna, but I definitely was never as cool. I'm Jason Bailey, and this is Fun City Cinema, a podcast about New York and the movies that made it. This is the city of New York. There's all kinds of ways to get killed in this city. I love this dirty town. God, I hate this town. Welcome to New York. <laughs> you want to live in a toilet like Manhattan or the Bronx? So how do you like our fair city? Oh, we do. Stole it right off the street from you, huh? Yeah, well, that's New York. Oh, what kind of a life is this? Where the hell do you want to move to? This goddamn city. 
Fun City Cinema by Jason Bailey and Mike Hull. You just flush it right down the fucking toilet. Man, I'm walking here! I'm walking here! I gotta get out of this city, man. Why? I don't know, it's just not for me. What am I supposed to do, sleep on the subway? Okay, Alice, this is Fun City, but we gotta draw the line somewhere. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. You're hearing the opening of The Blank Generation, a 1976 film directed by Amos Poe and Yvonne Crowell. It was, most agree, the first no-wave movie, and it's a music film, which is appropriate since no-wave was a label first applied to music for an emerging scene of untrained enthusiasts making noise. The home base for this new scene was the legendary CBGB. You could also hear no-wave music at Max's Kansas City, the Mud Club, the Kitchen, and the Peppermint Lounge, as well as galleries like Artist Space and Soho. And this was key. No-wave was a, a cross-media designation. It folded in music, punk, dance music, the early iterations of hip-hop. It included art, you know, performance art, sculpture, graffiti, and inevitably, it extended to cinema. Amos Poe and Yvonne Krall had access to a silent 16mm camera, so they started shooting some of the scene's big bands, including Patti Smith Group, The Ramones, Talking Heads, Blondie, and Richard Hell, on stage and behind the scenes. They needed somewhere to assemble it, and the Maisels Brothers, directors of documentaries like Great Gardens and Gimme Shelter, had an editing facility. They offered Poe and Crowell a cheap 24-hour rate, so the filmmakers took a bunch of speed and cut the 53-minute movie in that one-day stretch, sinking their silent footage, often haphazardly, with demo tapes and other miscellaneous audio. Thankfully, a new piece of affordable equipment would simplify the process for other downtown filmmakers. This is Amos Poe from the documentary Blank City. I went to a friend's house, and he had two Super 8 cameras, one he was taking apart, and I said, what is that? And he said, it's a Super 8 camera. I said, what does it do? He said, you make movies with it. And it was like, love at first sight. The Super 8 camera was in many ways no more sophisticated than the 8mm home movie cameras that had become a household accessory in the 1950s. But there was one key difference. These new Super 8 cameras could record sound directly onto the film strip, eliminating the need for cumbersome, separate, and synced soundtrack recording. And a bunch of Super 8 cameras had made their way to the Lower East Side, thanks to the mysterious Freddy, who sold electronics on Houston Street. Here's filmmaker Charlie Ahern in Blank City. This guy had a ground floor place that sold all kinds of hot stuff. There was a line of people that day going to buy these cameras. And six months after that period, James Nairs and the Bees and... Eric Michel and all these people were coming out with these Super 8 films, and that sort of helped jumpstart the whole thing. Amos Poe got the movement going with his films Unmade Beds and The Foreigner. Other early downtown films included Jamie Nair's Rome 78, Eric Michel's Kidnapped, and Scott and Beth B's Black Box. The budgets were non-existent, the acting and filmmaking amateurish. Reviewing The Foreigner, the New York Times' Tom Buckley wrote, No one in the cast has the least idea of how to act. 
The story is infantile, and the photography, sound, and editing are primitive in a way that stopped being amusing ten years ago. But they weren't making films for the New York Times, maybe even not for the Village Voice, though that publication's film critic, Jay Hoberman, was an admirer, writing a voice feature on the scene titled No Wavelength, The Parapunk Underground, for The Voice in May of 1979. Hoberman wrote, These are hardly seamless fictions. Some are willfully, at times brilliantly primitive. Rejecting the increasingly academic formalism that has characterized the 1970s film avant-garde, as well as the gallery art of video, the Super 8 New Wave represents a partial return to the raw values of underground of the 1960s. Jack Smith, Ron Rice, the Kachar brothers, early Warhol. Like its precursor, the new underground's technically pragmatic films enact libidinal fantasies, parody mass cultural forms, glorify a marginal lifestyle, and exhibit varying degrees of social content. There are inherent dangers in lumping a group of artists together into a scene or movement solely by virtue of geographic proximity, and we'll get to that later. But there was a definite sense of community in the downtown film scene. People worked on each other's movies, exchanging favors and loaning equipment, I'll act in your film if you'll help edit mine, that sort of thing. This kind of cross-pollination was easy because skill sets weren't really an issue. Nobody knew how to do anything, so everyone was just learning by doing. The downtown filmmakers had that in common with the musicians of the roughly concurrent punk and hip-hop scenes, and that spirit was infectious. Soon, filmmakers and actors were starting bands, while musicians like Debbie Harry and artists like Jean-Michel Basquiat were starring in movies. No matter what the discipline or medium, it felt like the Lower East Side was theirs for the taking, a, a sandbox where everyone could play. New York City was in one of its roughest periods, still climbing out of the financial ruin of the mid-1970s, and there were sections of the Lower East Side, much like neighborhoods in Brooklyn and the South Bronx, that looked like a war zone, filled with abandoned and mismanaged housing. The straits and squares had fled the city for the suburbs. Only freaks were moving to New York. So artists could rent these apartments for cheap, or even just squat in them. Here's filmmaker Jamie Nairs. We all had these little $50 a month apartments alongside and above each other. We called it Little Hollywood or something. And there was a bunch of people who lived there, Amos and Tina Lahotsky, John Lurie. We all worked on each other's films and played music together. And we were very aware that it was the same neighborhood where the old one reelers and two reelers had been made at the turn of the century, where they shot a movie in an afternoon. They often had to share those cheap apartments with multiple roommates or even worse, rats and cockroaches. But that monumentally low cost of living meant that they could focus on the work, not on paying the bills. This is Robert Aaron and Glenn O'Brien of the public access show TV Party from the 1995 documentary about that show. Rents weren't in the stratosphere, you know. You didn't need to be a, you didn't need to be Michael Bloomberg to live in this town. You know, anybody, you know, anybody could, uh, an apartment in the Lower East Side or the East Village or whatever you want to call. Whatever you want to, whatever you want to call the area, you know, apartments would, you could get an apartment for two hundred dollars a month, and you didn't have to look that hard. Hell, the apartment I lived, you know, apartments me and Glenn lived in were, were under two hundred. We, 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 I don't remember how much we were paying, but we weren't paying very much. You didn't have to have a full-time job. You could work maybe one or two days a week and survive, and make your music or do your paintings or whatever it was. We had the lofts, which were so cheap to rent. This is Betty Gordon again. And they were such a wreck. 
some people had to put in plumbing, electricity. When I, when um, James Benny and I came, we got a loft on Greenwich Street that was 2,500 square feet, and the rent was $356 a month. Like many downtown filmmakers, Gordon wasn't a New Yorker. She grew up in Boston and went to college in Madison, Wisconsin. While I was in Madison, I took a film class, and the TA was James Benning. And Benning and I became a couple, and I don't know if you know his work. He's an avant-garde filmmaker. Uh, And he and I started to make films together, and we both decided to move to New York. We had been coming to New York a lot, coming to all the cinemas, like the anthology, Collective for Living Cinema, Millennium, like all of the places that were edgy and fun and kitchen and film forum was even there. So it was, it was that time. So by 1980, um, was in New York. Left yesterday, living on the Lower East Side in a two-room apartment. Details later. That's a clip from one of Gordon's early films, Empty Suitcases, which really captures the feeling she had of parachuting into this scene. We had come to escape from the suburban world that we grew up in, many of us, or, you know, from, from wherever we came. And so the films reflected these new neighborhoods where artists, filmmakers, theater people, um, musicians lived, and it was downtown. So that idea of taking anything you, getting anything you could get your hands on could work. Um, and I think that's what created the sense of freedom. Susan Seidelman also came from that suburban world and was drawn to the electricity and freedom that New York seemed to offer. Yeah, it was, you know, I I knew I wanted to be in New York, and NYU was sort of an excuse to get me there, because I really liked filmmaking, but at that time, again, we're talking the, you know, it was like 73, 74, I really, the thought of actually being a professional female director, you know, wasn't, you know, it was like a fantasy, but wasn't sort of an actual concrete goal. But uh, the idea of going to film school, of getting involved in film, getting to be around people who liked film, uh, was exciting to me, and also getting out of of suburban Philadelphia. (laughs) That was was the big motivator. (laughs) The city did not disappoint. There was something very, you know, outsider-ish about it that, that was, again, exciting and also inexpensive sort of, you know, the boundaries were blurred. You know, when you're young, you're a little bit fearless and perhaps also coming from, you know, being an outsider and coming into the city. I didn't know how dangerous it was. So there was something (laughs) um, liberating about being so naive. You know, I'm, you know, five feet tall and I would ride by myself take the subway home at night from some venue at, you know, three o'clock in the morning to St. Mark's subway station. And I didn't, I didn't even think, oh, it's dangerous. I just, you know, (laughs) uh, I didn't know. (laughs) It was a great time to be creative uh, and poor because, because life was cheap there. But yet, because of that, there was a lot going on, especially downtown. She got her graduate degree from NYU in 1977 and quickly became aware of both the downtown music and film scenes and of their intersections. At that time, especially in the late 70s, there were so many, particularly musicians, that didn't necessarily have any talent. (laughs) 
or great talent, but that didn't stop them from being in a band. And it was more about having that energy and drive to be a part of something. I mean, if you went to CBGBs, you know, now some of the people, you know, Blondie or the Ramones or Talking Heads that started there went on to do create amazing music, but a lot of bands really could not play instruments and, 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 and had no discernible talent or songwriting skills, and that that kind of didn't matter, and that wasn't the point. Betty Gordon agrees. It was just a sense of risk-taking and exploration. And, and big, the biggest part was the conversation between artists all artists, and I don't just mean like, you know, painters, sculptors, but this conversation between music, art, film, writing, dance, sculpture, and people were using different medium to speak to each other in, in the ways in which they would make work. And sometimes that, that cross-pollination, it changed someone's entire path. Like, for example, Detroit native Lizzie Borden. Well, I started out in the art world. You know, basically, I wanted to be a painter and realized pretty quickly I wasn't very good at it. And <laughs> I, I was writing art criticism for some magazines very early on because uh, a professor had invited me to do that. But downtown, there was an amalgam of there was everyone. There were there were uh, there were painters. There were uh, artists of all sorts. There were musicians. There were theater people, and everybody worked with everybody. It just was like that. You'd run into people in the street. They'd be in your project. But looking back, Lizzie Borden is also hesitant to lump all these filmmakers into a movement or a scene. I think labels are put on by uh, kind of post-historians. In other words, because everyone was down there working at the same time within a geographical uh, confine, which is below 14th Street, uh, and working, you know, we were all working in the same place, then it, it's easy to uh, group everyone together and say we were all part of a movement. The idea of a movement, as if we shared a common thought, is untrue. It was just a gathering that uh, other people put a rope around and said, oh, this is a movement. Now, the similarities are, of course, no one had any money. We were all making films. <laughs> that might have been a movement, the movement to make films despite having no money. <laughs> and she does share Seidelman and Gordon's fondness for the cooperative spirit of the time and place. You know, I had a, a steam deck in my loft that I had all the time, and I rented it out in eight-hour bits you know, for $25, and it was running round the clock. So everyone worked there. I became very good friends with uh, Betty, uh, Deborah Harry was there. Jonathan Demi, I think, was there at one point. I mean, people came because $25 for eight hours, but it, it paid for itself. But I, that's what I mean. I, we, it was one of the many centers of shared services where we could, everyone, everyone thanks a guy named Rafiq who, show, who sold short ends. It, it was a guy named Rafiq. Did, has his name popped up? He had a, a loft that he started renting equipment out of and selling cheap film stock and like, uh, what were they called, loose ends. So you could buy leftover film stock. And it became kind of a little hangout. And he also had like little informal film screenings, maybe Super 8 stuff. 
literally it was like a walk you know the loft like in smithereens where it was like a huge <laughs> um you know vertical flight of stairs where you got dizzy trying to walk down especially carrying any equipment but it was cheap and it became a little bit of a gathering spot but see there are also incredible um and very inventive showing spaces there were um places like the kitchen there were places like um Max's Kansas City second floor where Beth and Scott Lee showed their super 8 films if nobody was inviting you to be in the conventional spaces turn a club into a cinema turn your loft into a um a a, a party club um after hours um you know you could sort of hustle your way anything could become a space where People could be invited, no rules, professionalism, not necessary. Anybody who had equipment would lend it. Helping each other was, hey, I'm going to shoot something. Can you, can you help me out on this and I'll help you out? And it was driven really not by, and this is the key issue, no marketplace. There was no interest in a marketplace. People were making stuff for each other. It was a way of showing your work to each other. So if there was a band playing um, at one of the downtown clubs and somebody wanted to show movies or do a performance or do a reading, you know, you could just organize that in between the bands playing. Nobody was stopping us. And very often we thought we were just making them for ourselves. For example, people often ask, like, who are you making Born in Flames for? And I was just making it because it didn't exist before it was made. All right, so I want to bring in my co-host, Mike Hole here, because, Mike, the, you know, we've talked about this. No great art or great artists ever exist in a vacuum. So, like, what was happening outside of downtown in New York? What, what was the, the city like while this scene was exploding? The Poe movies, the first ones were 76, right? The Blackout was 77, they're cutting, you know, services. We've talked about that. That's something that you and I talked a lot about as you were working on the book, actually, is this idea of when you cut services to, to certain areas in the city, it makes them untenable to live in. The idea being that it helps make people leave. Right. You know, so once those people leave, then the buildings are cheap and you can go in and gentrify those areas. So when, you know, the South Bronx is literally on fire, you know, when you get all the way through the drug epidemic that starts to happen in the 80s, it seems like they just let it be. They just let it happen. And yes, to hell with the people that lived there and the impacts on them. And one of the, the terms that you'll hear bandied around a lot when you talk to some of these filmmakers and observers of this scene was wild west like the lower east side was like an un an, an unregulated un uh unwatched wild west like if i understand it correctly there were not like this wasn't entirely that they didn't care like there were also like not cops around like there were shortages right as as a result of some of the 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 cuts and funding from the seven there were shortages of every bit of the city services right again like we this this in a lot of ways follows on the last episode where we talked about cutting in all of the different city services and and we really talked about how the police reacted to that last time right we didn't talk about how the teachers reacted to it but that was one thing that you know Koch said literally I'm not gonna lay off more teachers so I can hire more cops the other thing is you know the police force was um not at their most effective 
when it's completely filled with graft and all these other things, right? And also when they're when they're prioritizing, you know, with with limited um, limited personnel, maybe these aren't the areas that they're so concerned about. So what you end up with is the cops that are in those areas are, you know, potentially in those areas for nefarious purposes, right? Sure. It, sure. It's really you're you're trying to build an unwelcoming environment and you want everybody to leave and you want for the people who remain there to be disposable, uh, you know, or, or to be able to be presented as disposable, you know, for whatever highway you want to run through there. If it's, you know, the 50s. Right. Or whatever high rise, you know, condo building you want to build there if it's the, the 80s and and beyond. That is the kind of setup for all of this. And the people who end up going there and living there, you know, I don't think they expected for like white people from <laughs> not only do they live in those places and, and all of the things that that means, but they were also documenting it and showing it off to the world, uh, which is, I have to think, another thing that, that no one expected. So outside of the, the sort of the New York context that we want to put this in, you know, we we talk about it as being a late 70s, early 80s scene. Most of the women that we're talking about here either came here or started actively working and making these the films we're going to talk about right around 1980-81. What was happening on a nationwide level in late 1980, early 1981? I mean, the big thing is, you know, Reagan gets elected and he's really trying to bring back the American myth in a way that had been punctured starting in, I mean, you want to say like starting with the civil rights movement, you know, where there's people really kind of speaking truth to power and, and there's photographs and, you know, people are being bit by dogs and sprayed by hoses and all these things that started to really puncture the myth that we could kind of solve all of our problems through peaceful grievances, you know, through peaceful means, right? And then you get into all of the the Vietnam protests and, and this, it, you start to build kind of a culture of puncturing that myth. And a lot of people go to Vietnam and then we hear the stories that are being told from Vietnam but then all these soldiers are coming back and none of that shit was true. You know, that was all a lie. Right. So the American myth had really been kind of torn apart. And then by by the time Jimmy Carter's president, like he wasn't really even trying to to polish that turd anymore. You know, he was a very pragmatic person. He said over and over on the campaign trail, I will never lie to you. And as a follow up to the Nixon uh, and Ford administrations, that was a hell of a promise. You know, that was a very meaningful thing to say, right? Well, a part of that is really puncturing that myth. Uh, so Reagan comes along and he's really trying to kind of recreate that myth. But there's a lot of people who grew up in an era when we weren't doing that and they weren't ready to go back to it. Another thing that is, I think, particular to this episode in a lot of ways is the Equal Rights Amendment. The Equal Rights Amendment, which is something that we don't really hear a lot about right now, but it was something that was really supposed to level the playing field between men and women in a lot of different areas. Property ownership in terms of employment, in terms of wage, in terms of union membership. There were all these different things that were wrapped up in it. And culturally, even the things that weren't specifically laid out in the ERA, just having these conversations about where in our society men and women weren't on an equal playing field was very valuable. 
And that was an amendment to the Constitution. So it needed to be passed by the House and the Senate and then signed off on by two-thirds of the state legislatures. It passed the House and the Senate in like 77 during the Carter administration, but it came up on its deadline before it was going to be signed off on by the states, right? It came up on the deadline for signing off. These things don't just last forever. Right. It's like working its way through those state legislatures and some, some are signing on and some aren't. Exactly. So there were a bunch of states that signed it quickly, but then there was this push to really get to the two thirds. And Carter ended up, so that deadline was 78. Carter ends up pushing the deadline. He signs an executive order that pushes the deadline to 82, but no other state signed between 78 and 82. So there was challenges to whether or not that was legal by people who did not want the ERA to pass, but it ends up becoming a moot point when nobody, when no other state legislatures sign it. Right. And right in, right in the middle of that window, in comes Ronald Reagan and the more, you know, pushed in, pushed into office with the help of the moral majority. And that neither of those are factions that are really like, hey, let's let's get equality for women. Let's make that a priority. Exactly. And uh, and and the the female faces of those movements were people like Anita Bryant and, and it was just kind of the famous one and other women who were, uh, if not openly subservient like talked about the politics and philosophies of subservience and and it was based in a lot of ways in american kind of evangelical christianity uh and their very particular reading of of the bible and of history and so it's wrapped up in, in a lot of things that weren't that didn't serve women and and when you think about kind of the ages of the filmmakers that we're talking about here a lot of them grew up in this time of women's lib, it was called then, right, which was short for liberation. And, and they grew up with the expectation that by the 1980s, things were going to be different. Things were going to be better. And, of course, nobody expected there weren't still going to be plenty of sexists in the world. But when Dolly Parton is making 9 to 5, I mean, you would think that the world is going somewhere, right? Yeah. Like, you would think that, that things are changing. And... I think by 1982, it just really felt like none of that was true anymore and that everything was just kind of collapsing and that, you know, that's how you get, I think, a movie like Born in Flames, which is this statement of desperation in a way. Like, there is no way for us to, to resolve our grievances through the means we were told we were going to be able to resolve them. The only thing we can do is revolution. And, and so, obviously, you know, as we're talking about in this show, these different women have different reactions to that. Not everybody felt like blowing up the World Trade Center, but I think you really see that in all of these movies, it, this, this kind of striving for liberation and, and striving for, even if it's not a, an openly political movie like Smithereens, it was a character that was just unlike anything else that I'm familiar with from movies of that era. And that in itself, that kind of representation and, and perspective is revolutionary in its own way. And all three of those key films from these three filmmakers come out in a two-year stretch between 1982 and 1983. So let's dive into how those films came to be. Uh... Excuse me, but uh, there seems to be a lock on my door. So this is a scene from Susan Seidelman's 1982 breakout film, Smithereens. Okay, all right, I got the message. Look, you know, it's really funny. I was just getting paid tomorrow. I was going to give it to you then. So could you just take it off so I can get in? I don't want to hear one of your stories. No, really. Susan Berman stars as Wren, a young woman on the Lower East Side, desperate for fame and affirmation. 
or at the very least, for enough money to pay her rent. Well, Gia, I hate to bother you, but I at least have something to wear. I can't walk around in the same clothes. You wait outside. Ren is a bit of a hustler, trying to make connections, trying to hitch herself to someone with talent, or at least someone who can help her get out of her dead-end life in New York. Hey, quit throwing my stuff around! How much you want for this? Well, here we go. Rat bitch! You're gonna pay for this! To get Smithereens made, Seidelman had to do some hustling herself, shooting the film in pieces as actors and money became available. Stop and go, stop and go over a period of a year it was filmed in three different sections. Started filming, I think, in, I, I might be a year off here, been a while. In 1980, in May or June, so it was warm weather, it was shot for a week. Lead actress had an accident during a rehearsal. She fell off a fire escape. We were filming in an old loft building and she broke her leg. It could have been a disaster, but it, it was, you know, it, it was sad she broke her leg, but the irony was that it, it, we stopped filming for three months while she was in a cast. That gave me a week worth of dailies to, to edit and to see what was working, to see what wasn't working, and really reshape the script to kind of emphasize the good stuff and take away the stuff that just didn't work as well. During that hiatus, Seidelman connected with screenwriter Ron Nicewanner, who would later write Philadelphia for Jonathan Demme. Together, they reworked the script, and that winter, she shot the film's interiors. Now had two chunks of footage that I could, you know, edit. Saw, again, what was working, what wasn't. Maybe tweaked the script a little bit to um, to, to emphasize the, the stuff that I liked. The extra time paid off. Smithereens pulses with electricity and lived-in authenticity. It became the first American independent film to compete for the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. Again, when I made the movie, I really did not think about its future. I didn't even think about getting a distributor or going to the Cannes Film Festival. I really did not think further ahead than I, I want to make this movie and I hope I can finish it. Um, but I do think that sometimes out of that naivete and a kind of genuine desire to make something about the time you're living in without any calculation, it, it has an honesty and a, pure, a purity to it that transcends time. You know, watching the film now, what's maybe most striking is the nuance with which it regards its protagonist. You know, I've been trying to hook up with a band. Guy I know the other night was talking to me about being a road manager. Yeah? Yeah, he thought I'd work really great with a band. And, you know, he was going to L.A. too. Mm. I don't know, I've been thinking maybe L.A.'s not so bad. You know, maybe I should, I should check it out. She's not traditionally, quote-unquote, sympathetic. She's kind of a bullshitter, a compulsive liar. And by the end of the film, she's alienated pretty much everyone she knows. And that's noteworthy because, especially in 1980s cinema, female characters, particularly those in films written and directed by men, weren't allowed to have that kind of complexity. I wanted to make her feel authentic and real. And, and I think that there was something, you know, people use the word, oh, is the character sympathetic? That, that, that's something I've run up against you know, a lot in the past 30 years. 
to me, it wasn't so much. I wanted her to be interesting. I wanted her to be compelling. Did I want her to be nice? Not necessarily. You know, um, I wanted her not to be totally distasteful, but I, but, but, but sympathetic to me also is somebody that you kind of get invested in. To me, that was important that you kind of are interested to see what's going to happen to her and not so much that there's a kind of pat, oh, you know, she's, she's nice or, oh, she deserved that. You know, I didn't want to make a moral judgment. Christine, the protagonist of Betty Gordon's Variety, is similarly complicated. Like Wren, even the comparatively low cost of living in early 80s New York is killing her. She's desperate for a job. If I don't get a job soon, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Really? I don't. It's bad. Well, I do know of a job, Chrissy, but I don't think you would want it. I really don't think you're the type. Sure. I don't think it's for you, honey. Look, I'm interested. What is it? And that's how she ends up selling tickets at a porno theater. And on her breaks, she finds herself wandering in, staring at the screen with a horror that slowly transforms to fascination, and then more. The story had some personal resonance for Betty Gordon. A lot of my female friends were working at a bar uptown in Times Square called Tin Pan Alley. And that took us outside of um, downtown. But it was still a downtown place, but it was uptown. But we went there because our friends were there, and the woman who ran the space also was very generous, and she started giving people shows there. It was not just lower downtown artists and filmmakers and musicians, but it mixed with the sex trade on 42nd Street. So it was an interesting mix of people. You know, it's really easy to imagine how sensationalistic this story of a young woman's porn-influenced psychological and psychosexual journey could have been in the hands of a male filmmaker. And that traditional interpretation and perspective was very much in Gordon's mind, thanks to Laura Mulvey's vital essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. Laura's article was very important, I think, especially to me, because it, the question it asks is, who is the film directing itself towards in the audience? And as she said, in classical narrative, to a male viewer. And it was a very compelling argument. And I said, ooh, what if I, what if I, because I know myself, I said, I like to watch, I like sex, I like sexuality, I want to watch that too. Like, why should they just get to, you know? And then inside, on the screen, a woman reaches up and unties the neck strap of her halter. Half turning, she steps out of her panties. She licks her lips and rubs her nipple until it's stiff. Fuck me, she says. All right, James, Christine, I gotta go. I gotta be uptown by two. I don't think so. I'll call you. Will you pay my check for me? Sure. Variety never succumbs to any of those exploitative impulses because it feels so personal. Gordon is fascinated by this woman, by her journey, but she doesn't judge her for any of it. Yes, it was lived for me. It was my living experience, you know, and that's what everybody was doing, putting their life, their experiences down in film. Black women, be ready. White women, get ready. Red women, stay ready, for this is our time and all must realize. That's a clip from Lizzie Borden's 1983 film, 
born in flames. Second wave feminism was very powerful. I became a kind of second and a half uh, second wave feminist and be- began to see that uh, downtown was all white. It was all middle class, not everyone, but I really became radicalized. And so I, that's what made me want to do a different kind of film. Homosexual? Yes. Women's Army appears to be dominated by blacks and lesbians. So you could make your projects, but what you couldn't get were other kinds of people. You couldn't get, you couldn't get women of color, which wasn't exactly the term then. You could not be intersectional, which wasn't the term then. It was, it was an impossibility. So everyone intersected, but it wasn't intersectionality. This week of celebration, commemorating the 10th anniversary of the War of Liberation, is a time when all New Yorkers take pride in remembering the most peaceful revolution the world has known. I approached Born in Flames with the idea, with a kind of science fiction idea, not really science fiction, but with just a hypothesis. Um, A social cultural revolution has happened, and a social democratic cultural revolution. And women are now second-class citizens. But then I thought, well, who would be the most most endangered or the most oppressed? And I thought black women, but, but you know, women of color and lesbians. But I didn't know any women of color, and I really didn't know any lesbians of the type. I knew white lesbians, but I didn't know black lesbians. So I had to find them. I had to actually find women who would be willing to be in a, in a film where I couldn't say where it was going to go, how many years it was going to take. It took five years to make. And the truth will be heard and the story must and shall be told. It is not only the story of women's oppression, it is the story of sexism, racism, bigotry, nationalism, false religion and the blasphemy of the state-controlled church, the story of environmental poisoning and nuclear warfare, of the powerful over the powerless for the sake of sick and depraved manipulations that abuse and corner the human soul like a rat in a cage. Also, it changed over the years because the presidency changed. And so it became a lot more angry when Reagan was elected. It was really changed over the five years. And it really took me a long time to find women who would be uh, committed to staying with the project. And uh, I wanted a multiplicity of voices and I wanted it to be women's own voices in a chorale uh, of voices. So that's why I couldn't write a script because it couldn't be my voice. Almost 40 years later, Born in Flames is still astonishing because it's an honest to God work of radical art. The kind of film it's hard to imagine even a bold independent filmmaker releasing today. And not only because it concludes with the bombing of the World Trade Center. The topics Borden is tackling here, socialism, social justice, violence as protest, sex work as work, police brutality, have only become more relevant. Today's violence began when police tried to remove demonstrators from the mayor's office, and it continued through the morning as angry young men roamed the downtown area, indiscriminately destroying storefronts and cars and attacking passers-by. Police spokesmen denied accusations that they overreacted to the rioters, citing the sympathy many officers feel for the demonstrators' cause. We're talking about three 
truly excellent films. I mean, they're well-made, well-acted, thoughtful, provocative. But watching them together does reiterate Lizzie Borden's point that perhaps it's reductive to lump these filmmakers together based on proximity when they had such different approaches and aims as artists. Betty Gordon agrees. Lizzie came from the art world. She came to New York, you know, more in terms of like art. She was part of that, a group of women who were looking more at destroying that hierarchy of the male artists and demystifying, that's what she would say. You know, this idea was, her idea was to demystify the means of production. You know, she wasn't interested so much in what I was. I was more interested in how are women represented on screen, what's inside the frame, what's outside the frame. Susan was more interested in the character. She loved these zany, crazy female characters like Celine and Julie go boating, you know, or, or the screw, screwball comedy characters. She wanted to explore those things. By the time these three films were making their way into theaters, circa 1982 and 1983, the downtown scene was already changing. Artists had been embraced by the big galleries and big buyers. MTV had launched. And its hunger for programming meant that new artists with a keen visual sense, like Blondie, like Talking Heads, like the B-52s, were beaming into the homes of middle America. And the downtown cinema scene was mutating into something harsher, angrier, and more assaultive. The practitioners of this new scene called it the cinema of transgression. Here's Susan Seidelman. A bunch of these people that were doing things that were more experimental, that were coming more out of art cinema. And those are the movies that didn't, that were very specific and didn't even maybe want to or attempt to penetrate into a more mainstream audience. I think I loved narrative. I mean, I was coming from NYU and, you know, I kind of loved stories and loved characters and, and certainly loved a lot of what I was seeing at NYU, which was the French New Wave cinema. And I think that's what made those films a little bit more accessible and break out a little bit because they weren't intended just to be shown at the collective. Seidelman got the chance to make a bigger budget, higher profile Smithereens follow-up, Desperately Seeking Susan, in which she had the good sense and good fortune to cast an up-and-coming downtown musician named Madonna in a key supporting role. Lizzie Borden's next feature, Working Girls, was widely acclaimed, screened at the 1986 Cannes Film Festival. Here's Betty Gordon. You know, all of a sudden people were making films and they were having gallery shows. And, you know, there was, you know, the work in theater and the work in music. And, I mean, the success was coming. And that success became codified after and I would say the downfall of this kind of independence in cinema was Sundance. And I can't, you know, say that Sundance was it also offered, you know, a whole new place for people to promote work. But it was so easily co-opted. It was hard to co-opt our work because it had no super professionalism. But with Sundance, all of a sudden you have a lab and a workshop and a kind of almost, it, you know, and I would say even today that there's kind of almost typical Sundance film. I don't know, me, I'm sure people would disagree, but I look at a film and I go, oh, Sundance. 
what happens now is that if you make a little film, it doesn't get out of Sundance. And it's still there, but nobody sees it. All of which brings us back to our original question. Why is it that at this particular moment, in this specific place, an art form that has historically shunned women directors did the opposite? I honestly think that more than anything related specifically to gender, it's just that it was so much easier to get out there and create something then. Abby Bender is a contemporary writer on film and fashion. I mean, this has been said a million times before, but these were the days when you could move to New York and not have a lot of money and be an artist. I think that that probably gave women a lot more freedom, this idea that you could sort of pick up a camera. There wasn't quite as many barriers to entry, maybe. Honestly, we didn't know we couldn't make movies. <laughs> no one said you couldn't do it. So we, I, I certainly approached it almost uh, in, in a naive way. You know, I didn't know the statistics. I think sometimes too much information, when you know how bad the odds are, it might deter you. I think it's all those things. It was definitely a moment in time, I guess, in terms of this seizing the opportunity. What I think sometimes holds women back is they think, well, I don't have enough experience. But experience wasn't, it wasn't necessity. The means were there and the uh, exhibition spaces were there. Nobody was stopping us and there were venues to show these films. And we were just doing them basically for ourselves. Uh, and there were so, so many fewer festivals. It wasn't, there wasn't the glut there was, there is today. And once the customary gatekeepers were out of the way, these women were free to make the best films of that moment. But I think the women who are coming from very specific places are coming from very specific stories with very unique points of view. Whereas I think that some of the men are, are coming from more similar points of view. They are not coming from more specific backgrounds. And I think the women feel more like outliers. And therefore, their stories might be more specific. And so on some level, maybe the more specific the story, the more interesting it might be. The 80s just had this, it was this moment in time. It was the urban moment, urban sensibility the real estate market, the politics of the moment, and the, the lack of means, which made everybody kind of throw their hat into the ring and say, let's just do it. It was so full of possibility that nothing felt impossible. You wanted to be in a band? You could be. You wanted to make a film? You could. And I guess does that still exist is my question. Yes, because yes, because you can get a cheap iPhone. You can shoot anything you want. You can get YouTube, you know, so so why doesn't it feel like it did? And the only explanation is the marketplace itself. You know what killed me when young students were coming out of art school and you'd ask them what they wanted to do and they'd say branding. It is going on in little tiny groups, but, and I think that they are, for example, there are places in Brooklyn, places in Queens, and I know that um, on some level, this has been going on in smaller groups scattered around New York. 
So the spirit is going on. I know it'll never happen geographically that way again, but I do feel that it can happen and does happen in pockets. Abby Bender agrees. I mean, I sort of feel like as long as there are creative people in the world, they will find a way. And I think in some ways, you know, digital filmmaking is its own thing that's made things easier for some people. But I just think at the end of the day, even if there is still an artist community, there's not necessarily going to be that same electricity in the air. Like a while ago, back when The Voice was around, um, I interviewed Anne Carlisle from Liquid Sky. She was so obviously so cool. And I remember when I was asking her about this stuff, she was just like, yeah, everything came out of the club scene. You know, she's like, everyone was, everyone was queer. Everyone was making their own costumes. Everyone would just go out and dance. And it's just almost like, of course it's not, but it almost sounds like this utopia where you just go to the club and you'd meet all these people and just be able to create something. But once they were out of that egalitarian creative utopia, the real hierarchies of the real entertainment world, of show business, became unavoidable. Old white men ran art galleries and record companies and movie studios, and suddenly the hurdles were put back in place. And a great many talented artists, especially women, were unable to clear them. So I think what's really what, what's really hard now, and it's not hard in Europe and in other places, is that it's easier to get $2 million, $3 million so that women in particular can build up a body of work. And that is what has hard, uh, proved hard for many of us, many women in the so-called industry, is that I never wanted to be a part of Hollywood. And what happened was that I had Harvey Weinstein experience, um, which I didn't know at the time. It's a long story, but he never, the sexual thing never came up, but the ruining of the career, you know, came up. And I did not know that. And so everything just became so impossible. But have we gone too far? Is it time to ask if the politics and programs of yesterday's liberation have become the stagnation of today? We cannot ignore the monumental inflation with which we are burdened nor can we condone the widespread abuse rampant in our social programs. At home, we are becoming trapped in bureaucracy, and throughout the rest of the world, our influence wanes. The management of this station fears that over-socialization has transformed our democracy into a welfare state. If we are to survive our ideals, we must carefully consider their implications. This, in the midst of our celebration, is the opinion of... The marketplace changes. So does the medium. And so does the city. Here's Susan Seidelman. Part of the myth of of New York and and, and the reality is that it's always been an ever-changing city and doesn't repeat. It kind of spirals. (laughs) But, you know, who would have thought that the Lower East Side, which was so vibrant, you know, for new immigrants turn of the century, would now be where the new rich stockbrokers all want to live and pay a fortune to get a, you know, a corned beef sandwich at at Katz's Deli, you know? We can get hung up on the specifics, the irreplicable circumstances under which the no-wave scene happened. We can enjoy the details, the roach-infested apartments, 
the clamoring for short ends and cameras, and we can revel in the cross-pollination of media. And of course, we can enjoy the movies. But this is where it gets interesting. Because of course, we have no interest in slagging the work of any of these New York filmmakers, particularly considering the battles they were waging on a daily basis against finance, technology, and indifference. But when you watch these no-wave films now and compare the quality of Smithereens and Born in Flames and Variety and Sarah Driver's Sleepwalk and Vivian Dick's Beauty Becomes the Beast and, and many others, when you compare them with most of their male counterparts, well, there's really no comparison. And that, I think, is what's most noteworthy about the downtown film scene of the late 1970s and early 1980s. It, it's easy to idealize it. And it's worth reiterating Lizzie Borden's point that it was a very white scene. It's also worth surmising that you know plenty of talented women, even in this moment, couldn't make their voices heard. The systemic barriers to women simply living their lives, to say nothing of working in a creative art, didn't just vanish in downtown New York in the late 1970s. But what we did see, more than at any other time and place in American cinema, was a moment in which the lack of resources and the lack of hierarchies across the board resulted in something resembling a level playing field. And when the playing field is really, truly leveled, just as many women make movies as men. And when the playing field is really, truly leveled, those women make the best films. So maybe that's the lesson we can learn from No Wave Cinema and the circumstance that everyone, from financiers to filmmakers to audiences, would benefit from trying to duplicate. From Fun City, I'm Jason Bailey. Fun City Cinema is inspired by the forthcoming book, Fun City Cinema, New York and the Movies That Made It, out in fall 2021 from Abrams Books. Fun City Cinema is written and hosted by my friend Jason Bailey. And produced and co-hosted by my friend Mike Holt. Special thanks to today's guests. Susan Seidelman's Smithereens is now available on Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection. Betty Gordon's Variety is now available on Blu-ray from Kino Classics. And Lizzie Borden's Born in Flames is available now on Blu-ray from First Run Features. All three of those films, by the way, are also currently streaming on the Criterion channel. And thanks to Abby Bender, who you can follow on Twitter at Abby, A-B-B-E-Y, underscore Bender. We'd also like to thank Emma Myers and Diana Drum for their help with today's interviews. Additional special thanks to Consigliere Rebecca Dryden. Our website is www.funcitycinema.com. And if you'd like to see some of the clippings and images referenced on today's episode, you can follow us on Instagram at funcitycinema. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Fifth Column Film, and Jason is at Jason Bailey. And if you like this podcast and would like to hear more of them, you can support it on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash funcitycinema. Or you can rate and review the podcast on your favorite app. It really does help. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening.
There are eight million stories in the naked city. This has been one of them. Why don't you move back home? Because I'm not setting foot in New Jersey again, ever.